Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, the Director of Online Learning at Fordham University, and on behalf of my co-host Ann Fernald, Special Advisor to the Provost for Faculty Development and Co-Chair of the Fordham University Council on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, I'd like to welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, How Do You Read the Zoom Room?, Anne and I discuss the limits of live sessions, teaching asynchronously, and which practices from the classroom can be implemented online. One of the things that was really interesting to me in what we were talking about what is trying to figure out what are we missing? What is Zoom not able to do? And one of the things that you said to me in one of our offline conversations was kind of how do you show your students who you are, right? And how do you, you, there's a kind of performance of being a professor. There's a kind of persona that we take on in the classroom. And a lot of that has to do with physicality, right? A lot of that has to do with our presence. I remember one of my very favorite college professors, Bob Garris, who died many years ago. And he was a really, really funny uh, and brilliant scholar with a PhD from Harvard. And he taught uh, classic Hollywood cinema and James Joyce with equal enthusiasm. He'd written a book about Dickens. He was a huge fan of Balanchine, the choreographer. And so he was a real polymath, real um, intellectual. And I took a classic Hollywood cinema from him and he was a very old, rather portly man with bright pink skin and brilliant white hair. And we were watching Rosalind Russell on TV, on the movie, and he said, isn't it amazing how she just marches into the room? And he walked out of the classroom and then slammed the door and walked back in marching like Rosalind Russell. (laughs) And there was really no person in the world who physically resembled Rosalind Russell less than this elderly, overweight, pink-faced man. But he was so unembarrassed to do that performance. And in doing that performance, he taught us something about how actually he had kind of mastered something about her bravura, her confidence, her briskness, right? And that was was so central to him and so central to my experience of the class. And I remember things about that movie because of that little moment of his lecture, you know, that must have been 35 years ago now. So how can we do that when we're a two-dimensional image in gallery view in Zoom? Right. So in Zoom, I feel like I'm present, but I'm not here. Yeah. Right. There's something missing. A few years ago, I was asked to work with faculty who are new to the university, just orienting them around some instructional methodologies and so on. And this one professor who has just come from China pulled me aside after the session and talked about how in Chinese he's funny, right? In his native language, (laughs) he's funny. He used his humor to make friends with his colleagues to connect with his students because he taught a quantitative subject. And he used humor to like lessen their stress and anxiety, but he couldn't be funny in English. And he, he felt a real sense of loss. So the other day I remembered him 
when I was giving a talk to about 40 faculty, I was invited to, you know, a session organized by one of the deans. And I found myself feeling like a hacky comedian, right? Is this thing on? <laughs> Hello? Right. You know, because it's just not, it wasn't, there's just a sea of blank faces. And my vision is not sufficient to be able to peer at the screen and get nonverbal cues. Well, and everyone's mic is muted. So you don't get the kind of you know, intake of breath that indicates some kind of delight or amusement or frustration or any of those, all of those cues. I've started becoming really broad in Zoom meetings. So um, waving at people, winking, giving a thumbs up sign, things that would be completely ridiculous. But I'm so addicted to feedback and I love it. It's one of the things I like about being with other people. And so I'm trying to kind of feed back to my students and my colleagues some sense of like, yeah, you're on the right track or I'm with you or I think that's a good idea without unmuting my mic and saying, uh-huh, which seems really broad. You know, you talk about feeling like a hacky comedian. So there's also that pressure to try to replicate what happens in the give and take of a classroom. There's a lot of the risk of live communication and a lack of some of the context and intimacy of being in someone's physical presence. Two different things that I want to think about more with you on this. And one is things that are working for me in my mm -hmm. live sessions with my students. And the other is to just confess that I share the fear of the asynchronous. And I want you to persuade me to be a little more brave in trying some asynchronous techniques with my students because I have been a little stubborn or a little reluctant. And I think for me, what I'm noticing is part of my reluctance is that I really enjoy the high wire active teaching. I have gotten in after years of teaching to a place where I go into the classroom with a half page of notes. I have three topics I want to cover. I know I need to do something interactive and I read the room. And sometimes we break into small groups. Sometimes we'll do a jigsaw. Sometimes we'll do a fishbowl. We do all different kinds of things, but I know how to do that on the fly by reading what's going on with my room. And that's really hard to do with Zoom. And one of the things that I discovered in my first real Zoom class last week is I figured out how to play with the chat window as a place for feedback and to kind of have almost two conversations going on at the same time. It's pretty risky because sometimes I feel like I'm listening too much or reading too much, but it gives me that kind of tension of uh, multitasking that makes me feel alive as a teacher. That really, really matters to me. So if I'm monitoring the window and the and the oral simultaneously, I feel really like jazzed, like, oh, I'm teaching now. You know, now we're cooking. It seems really fun. So that's great. But I the part of my fear of asynchronous is I realize that my best ideas come five minutes before I meet my students. You've really named this uh, our second episode. And <laughs> how, how, and I guess it's something like reading the Zoom room. Like, how do you read the Zoom room? Right. And and that, that's, that encapsulates so what I'm trying to kind of nail down. 
partly we're struggling to define the live session culture. There we go. So, so you mentioned before this um, idea of, okay, what, what is asynchronous, right? What am I doing? One of the reasons why I like asynchronous so much is that it affords me that space to curate myself, you know? Yeah. A tool I really like is called VoiceThread. I ask a series of open-ended questions, probably about five a week. What, did, what stood out for you? What did you notice? What resonated for you? And they're directed toward a specific bit of content. And they record what are supposed to be comments, but what over time have become entries in an audio journal. They can listen to each other's comments and integrate their classmates' comments into their own. But by the end of a 15-week semester, they've produced 90 minutes of audio content. And we use that as the basis for both the midterm and the final essay. At the midterm, they reflect on their comments, backward-looking and forward-looking. We collaboratively determine what makes an effective comment, and they apply that rubric to their own. And then in the final, I ask them to listen to all 90 minutes of their comments Oh and, and tell me what they notice, what themes emerge for them. Because I teach media and communication. So what I'm trying to create for them is a sense of equivalence between authoritative voices I'm asking them to listen to and read and their own voice and the voices of their classmates. That these yeah. are all voices of equal value that can be equally subject to analysis. And so recording a live conversation it's very different than recording something that's a bit more mindful. Um, so I think that's also a real value of what you can do asynchronously with discussion that is just very different. Discussion becomes a different thing if everyone has that time and space. So an asynchronous communication like a discussion board could be helpful in that regard because it also gives space and time for people to think through their answers there about what they want to say. Right. Because I think we are all experiencing Zoom Teague, <laughs> which is a word I'm trying to, you know, it's like a portmanteau I'm trying to put out there. There we go. I get a nickel every time someone says Zoom Teague. <laughs> Zoom Teague. One of the things I started doing last year, just, you know, before this ever happened, was sending students an email reminding them of the homework almost after almost every class and just for next class. And it was really what was on the syllabus, but in email form. And then I created a ongoing Google Doc of all the emails. So after I sent the email to the whole class, I would paste it into the top of a Google Doc that was shared of all my communications to the class. And the, my thinking behind that was about access, right? was about kind of helping students with um, who are juggling multiple jobs, helping students who may be second language learners, helping students who may have attention challenges to just remember that next time, you know, it's going to be really important because we're switching to a different text or next time we're moving on to a new unit or next time you need to bring a certain document with you to class or you need to have written a certain thing or you need to come prepared to discuss a certain thing. And so that's become, I think, even more important in this moment. And so I've been trying to, I mean, it's hard for me to remember these things, but I've been trying to remember to do things like save the chat from Zoom, which I forgot to do after class today, hmm. but 
to write in the chat window what we're what the agenda for the meeting is and then to share out after we meet what's going to happen next time but I don't do a lot of lecturing in my classes. It's almost all discussion. And what's really hard for me in Zoom is to get any depth to the discussion. Because it's so hard to interrupt people, because multiple people want to talk at the same time, because some people are not yet comfortable with the technology, and so some students who were just coming out of their shells in the classroom are now um, back to sitting comfortably in the habit of just listening for 75 minutes, right? So the chat, the chat box has been really helpful for that and doing things like allowing Zoom to be silent for two minutes and say, okay, everyone write a write your answer to this question in the chat. And then we kind of read all of those things. So that's been helpful. But I need to think more about some asynchronous things that are substantive for my students. What you just said resonates in my own experience that Zoom can sometimes turn into a series of loosely connected monologues. It's, yeah. it's sort of like we're responding to each other, but in the absence of you know, power language, two people start talking at the same time. And in Zoom, that's sort of like a violation that, that's, that I experience more intensely than I would in a face-to-face -face conversation. Oh, totally. That's right. Because, because there is no way to like lean forward or go, or just open my mouth and raise my eyebrow, right? And the <laughs> other person knows I want to say something. So I have to make a sound. And, and that requirement to make a sound is going to eliminate some percentage of people in the Zoom session. They're just they're just not going to do that. I'd be really curious to know week 3, maybe this is week 3. Um, yeah. which students haven't said anything in Zoom? I have everyone say something that's hard these days and then something that's getting them through. And when they're done, they have to call on the next person. And that's been really good for engagement. And mm -hmm. I think it's good for mental health, but it's also really good for engagement because they have to keep track of who's spoken and who hasn't spoken. And that feels like a really good part of community building for the class, right? Is that they're like, oh, you know, Anne hasn't gone yet, so I'm gonna call on Anne. Oh, Steve hasn't gone yet, so I'm gonna call on Steve, right? So they're kind of caring for each other. And so, and it's nice for me because I have 10 minutes where I don't really have to speak and I mute my mic. And if they forget, I make a gesture in the screen to show them to kind of make like a rolling gesture to say, you know, you have to, you have to call on someone now and they remember and they do it. So that's been really, really good. But if you think about any meeting that has a ritual, those ritualized structures are very helpful so that people know what to do. Right. So right. I know in this 10 minute chunk of time, right, where it's, we're sharing out or checking in. Okay, first we do the check-in, then we do the review from last week, then I do I introduce the objectives for this session, then we talk about some new content, then we go into our groups, and then we reflect. I mean, I'm making this up as I go along, right? But if we think of it in those terms, 
not as one big 90 minute Zoom session, but as smaller chunks that accrete into something that is like a, a ritual or a structure. Everybody knows what to do. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And it's making me think a couple different things. I mean, one of the things is I think that in this moment that feels really precarious and scary, that's an incredibly reassuring and probably very helpful way to do it. The other thing I think, and I think this back from some observations I was making of very new teachers many years ago, that when that gets ritualized into a formula, it's the worst kind of teaching possible, right? <laughs> yeah. And and instead of it being like the valuable things we learn from kindergarten teachers because we're all teachers and we're all learners, it becomes this class feels like kindergarten, right? Instead of this class feels stimulating and intellectual and like the special thing that college is supposed to be where we're really testing out new ideas, right? So we don't want to just create structures without thinking deeply about the practices and outcomes associated with those structures. Is, is that right? That's right. And I think one of the things that I, one of the places I've gotten to in the classroom is a place where I could have a fairly good idea of a plan for the day and the content objectives as well as the more abstract learning objectives, right? So not only are we reading this text and working on this idea, but we're also at a place in the semester where they're learning to write this kind of paper or they're learning to work with this kind of evidence, right? And so there's a lot of different things going on in any one class session. And I would have a pretty good idea in the classroom of, okay, this class needs to be a mix of me assuring myself that everyone has a grasp of this theoretical concept and permitting them time to work in pairs on the pair on a certain paragraph or whatever. I don't have the same range of skills in Zoom yet. And I don't think any of us do. And that's part of it too, right? Is it doesn't, I, I think it's probably not as flexible as the classroom. And um, so we have to go back to thinking really clearly about what our objectives are. And I think one of the things that you were saying earlier that seems really important is giving ourselves permission, if we are meeting our class at our regular class time, to not fill the whole time with air just because we have it. So even though the class regularly meets for 75 minutes, it might make sense in this moment to meet, meet at the regular start time and end 20 minutes early because they've been asked to watch a you know 10-minute lecture and do some con contributions on a discussion board outside of the class time as part of their homework. There is that tension between both the structures that we make might create for, for our students and our classes and externally imposed structures. Like someone designed Zoom. Someone had a vision of what Zoom was going to be and how it was going to function we're going to be called and what we can all do in that virtual space. You know, I was teaching in a in a new building on campus. It's in I was assigned this beautiful classroom 
but whoever designed that classroom made their vision of what teaching and learning look like permanent. The, t- the tables were Im- immovable and the chairs were like fastened to the underside of the tables and would only swing out a little bit. Oh, and no. were, it was it was sort of like a little amphitheater and I was designed to stand in the front by the screen. So someone had a vision of what, what the classroom should be and they reified that vision into this physical space. And I had to like work really hard with the students to overcome that physical space. And I don't know yet if that's the case with Zoom. Like if I could redesign Zoom, what it would be. But I do feel that we are conforming our teaching in virtual you know, spaces yeah. to what the technology will afford. That's really good. That's really good. That's so that so resonates with my experience. I've been trying to articulate and I don't know that I'm doing it very well yet, right? But what are the things that I'm grieving the loss of in this time that we're moving online? Because I feel like if I could put my finger on what I've lost, I will know what I want to preserve when this crisis is over and I will know what I need to try and create during this time that we are online and I'll have a better understanding of how to teach in a range of different environments you know how to teach a hybrid course how to teach an online course how to teach a face-to-face course so that's what I'm trying to articulate for myself right is why do rituals matter to me because they really do matter I mean I kind of push back against the idea of ritual but in fact Rituals are incredibly important to me in my teaching, right? Why does it matter to me that the ritual is not rigid, that I can play with it, that I can say, well, we're not going to talk about the homework today because we've done too much kind of meta talk. So we're just going to dive in to our small groups without any ceremony, right? So I like being able to do that, but that comes from really having a facility with what these are the five main elements of how class goes with me. We talked before about, okay, maybe we don't need to use the entire 90 minutes for Zoom. So how do you mm-hmm. end a Zoom session? How do we know when it's over? When is it when the clock runs out? When is there some, what, do we, what are some signals that you teaching in Zoom now? What are you relying on? Gradually the screens go dark and the cameras are <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. un, you know, muted or what? What happens? <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm noticing, I'm I'm still relying on the clock because I'm you know uh, so new to this. And one of the things I was realizing as I was planning my class is I don't have nearly as good a sense of how long things will take in Zoom as I do in the classroom. Yeah. So there's yeah. certain kinds of questions. Um, open-ended questions are really hard to ask in Zoom. You know, it takes a little bit of work and it, and it depends on how much patience we have. I don't know yet how we know when the session is over. I've been finding that hard when I've been having my happy hours with friends. You know, there's a certain point where I feel like I'm done. And <laughs> well, I, I, on a phone calls, we, we had the anyway, right? <laughs> There is no anyway for Zoom. On a phone call, it's like, anyway, that's a signal that, you know, this conversation is basically over. 
I have a friend who says, I'm so sorry. And maybe it's possible to turn back to our ritual um, metaphor to end the class with a reflection. You know the muddiest point? Do you know this strategy? Yeah, I love the muddiest point. So how do you do the muddiest point? That's something you could do in the chat. Something I'm confused about. Something I want to know more about. Something I wish we talked about. And the students write it down on a slip of paper and they hand it to me as I walk out the door. So I know what we should kind of think about, what I should think about as their teacher in the intervening weeks. It also helps me identify patterns of things I'm not covering or noticing or recognizing. Right. So that may be a good way to get closure, right? Right. Um, Kathy Davidson calls them exit tickets, right? That's right. another way of talking right. about it. Yeah. That's really smart. I love that idea. I love that idea. The one that, one of the kind of wrapping up questions that I really like is what other questions do you have? Is a variation on, does anyone have a question? What other questions do you have uh, assumes that everyone has a question, right? The, the, the assumption is you should, you should have a question. You should be engaged enough to have a question. And I have time to address your question. Right. Where, which is kind of the opposite message of, does anyone have a question? Which sounds like I got a train to catch. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been ending my Zoom session just yelling, ta-da. That seems to be. <laughs> Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Anne and myself, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>